Hey church, welcome to episode 10, can you believe it, of our series in the book of Romans. And today we arrive in Romans chapter 9. Now Romans chapter 9 is all about choice, specifically God's choice. In fact, if you have your Bible at home and you turn to Romans chapter 9, you may see a header at the very beginning that says God's sovereign choice. And so to begin, I just want to read a few verses from Romans chapter 9 as we move through this chapter together as a church. Let's look at verse 11 through 13, which is the preliminary example that the Apostle Paul here uses to speak about God's choice. It says this, Though they were not yet born and had had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here the Apostle Paul wants to speak about choice, God's sovereign choice. And we're going to jump right in today because there's so much here. And we want to see the hope that is found here and the beauty in this passage. So the Apostle Paul says, I I want to speak about God's choice by first drawing your mind back to how God dealt with Jacob and Esau all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. So we read here something about that story. And that is that God chose Jacob, the younger and not Esau, the older. Back then, culturally, the older would have been served by the younger. The older would have had greater rights and privileges, but God chose the younger. And there's a few important details here. The Apostle Paul says that that God chose Jacob before he was born, and before either one of them had done anything good or bad. Had nothing to do with works, he says. So it had nothing to do with the way that they acted, or treated one another, or their parents. It had to do solely with God's choice, with his election. And then it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that jumps right out, because love and hate. But we have to be really careful with the word hate here, because it doesn't mean hate the same way that we use it sometimes, which kind of communicates an emotion of burning anger hatred towards somebody else. The Apostle Paul is actually speaking about a Hebrew idiom that means to prefer, to have preference. It isn't the emotion of anger, it is to have preference. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he speaks to his disciples and he says that you must hate your family if you are to follow me. He doesn't mean that you need to burn with anger towards them, no. But you need to have preference for me, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me. So here, when it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, it's speaking about preference. I did not prefer Esau, I preferred Jacob. And I chose Jacob before he was born, or Esau was born, and before either one of them had done anything good or bad, it is solely based upon my choice. And so here, the Apostle Paul is actually building upon what we looked at last week. One of the verses in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 
that we could expand upon a little bit here today. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes this, For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Then after that he says, Those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. He's, he's building upon this statement that those God foreknew, he predestined, and then he called them to faith. He chose them. As he'll say, he elected them. Now that's really important to get right those words in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, when he says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And sometimes when we read this, we think, okay, so what that means is that before the foundation of the earth, God looked ahead in the future and he foreknew all of those that would choose him, that would surrender to him in faith. And then he predestined their lives and then he called them and then he justified them and one day he will glorify them. But the word foreknew has nothing to do with knowledge of the future. God is all-knowing, but that is not what is being communicated here. The word foreknew actually speaks about deep intimacy. It's related to the word to know that we see all throughout Scripture, which doesn't have anything to do with knowledge, but has everything to do with intimacy. In fact, to know in Scripture means to have sexual intimacy with another person. So here, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 is saying, those whom God knew intimately in the moment, are those that he predestined and he called and he justified and he glorifies. Those whom God chose, he elected. Another way to look at foreknew would be foreloved. Those whom God foreloved, he then predestined. And he's building upon it because he uses the example of Jacob and Esau and he's saying just like Jacob and Esau, God's choice for those whom he foreloves and predestines has nothing to do with your works, has nothing to do with you doing things right or wrong. It's actually even before you are born, just like we see with Jacob and Esau. It has everything to do with God's sovereign choice. You see, everything I just said may be easy enough to understand what the words mean and how the flow of salvation or the order of salvation goes. God foreloves, then he predestines, then he calls to himself, then he justifies, he makes you right with him in relationship through Jesus, and then he will glorify. And that he chooses before you're born, before you've done anything right or wrong. It's easy enough to follow, but it's very difficult to accept. It's hard to wrap our mind around that. And so the Apostle Paul writes Romans chapter 9 and really expands as well in Romans chapter 10 and 11 to address God's choice and how God operates, which from our vantage point can be difficult to understand and extremely complex. You see, this chapter here, Romans chapter 9, is a passage in Scripture that is difficult. We're just gonna say that from the very beginning, it's a difficult passage because it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the complexity of who God is and how he operates. So oftentimes we don't hear it preached from the pulpit 
Maybe it's discussed in a Bible study. Oftentimes, the Bible study is full of people that really want to do deep theological work, and so you get excited about Romans chapter 9. But it's work. It's difficult to process. But here's what I want to tell you. If you will engage with this today, if you will jump into this passage, I promise you that you will see the beauty of God. You will see the hope of God. You will see the mercy of God like you've never seen before. It's very similar, I think, to going to natural springs. Have you ever been to natural springs before? There's a bunch of them in North Florida. A very famous one is called Jenny Springs. And you go there and the water is vibrant blue. It's crystal clear. But here's the problem for those of us from Miami. It's freezing. It's like 70 degrees, 68 degrees. I mean, that is terrifying temperature of water for me. I'm more of 80 and above. Needs to feel kind of like a warm bath, then I'm okay. And so it can be difficult to go into the water because it's so cold. It's shocking when you jump in. But if you go to Jenny Springs or to natural springs that have a colder temperature and you arrive prepared with a wetsuit and you're ready to jump in, you're ready to face the shock of the cold and acclimate to it, you will see something incredibly breathtaking. Look at this picture right here of Jenny Springs. It is beautiful. The caves that you can scuba dive around, you can snorkel down and see, it's unbelievable. But you have to push through the initial shock. You have to be a little bit uncomfortable in order to see that breathtaking beauty. And I think that is true of God's word as well. In particular, it's true of Romans chapter nine. It's shocking. It's a little bit uncomfortable, hard to understand, but if you lean in, if you prepare, if you go into it, it's breathtaking. It's absolutely beautiful. And so here, as we jump into Romans chapter nine, the theological term that would be associated with this chapter is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. And sometimes you can maybe read this and think to yourself, why would you teach this? Because it kind of feels like God is saying, you know, I love them, I love them not. I love them, I love them not. It's this arbitrary choosing or electing based upon no good works for you were born or anyone. And so you have to be honest that this passage presents difficulties because it's hard to fathom, as I've said. But I think it's also important to understand that to reject the doctrine of election and to not wade into the waters of Romans chapter 9 and to just settle for maybe a differing view on salvation and how God operates with his people presents great difficulties as well. You see, if you don't like the idea that God chooses those whom he will save, that he elects those whom he will save, and you feel more comfortable with the mindset that we choose God, especially as Western thinkers, it's more comfortable because sovereignty is difficult for us to understand and to be okay with unless it's our own individual sovereignty. But God's sovereignty, especially when it regards election, can be 
hard and difficult. So if you want to believe that you choose God and God doesn't choose you, well, there's some difficulties there too. Some of the difficulties would be, how do you handle the first eight chapters of Romans that is speaking primarily about the reality and the truth that you are saved by grace and not by works? How do you deal with that? Because if you are not chosen by God, if you are not elected by God, then you choose God, which means you choose God and the result is God then, in some sense, is obligated to give you grace, to show you mercy because you have chosen him, which was a work of yourself, a good work of yourself to choose God, and now he then gives you grace as a result of that choice. So it presents a, a difficult issue. It presents some problems because if you're saved by grace and not by works, and grace is unmerited favor, meaning you can do nothing to earn it, then is not choosing God meriting the favor of God that he must then give you grace. Now, we have to be honest and we have to be fair. You could say, okay, okay, I can see what you're saying there, but here's how I see God's grace. I see God's grace as opening up even the possibility of, of salvation. The very fact that God made a way through Jesus and that people are given the opportunity to choose him to receive forgiveness is God's grace. The opportunity to choose God is where I see God's grace. And that's true. That's fair. But I also think it's a narrowing of God's grace. It's also taking God's grace and making it very specific in a way that you see it. It's not looking at God's grace in all aspects and applications. It's almost as if you're saying, I, I want God's grace to operate this way, but not in this way. I, I want to, I feel more comfortable believing that I choose God and then God gives me full, complete grace. So there's some challenges with the alternate view on how God works with his people, on the doctrine of election. Not to mention, to believe that you choose God is very difficult to work with this chapter here in Romans 9. And so the very baseline, the best way to describe Romans or the doctrine of election is that God chooses you just like Jacob he loved but Esau he did not prefer he hated and so we're going to walk through some of the questions that when you hear that you think because the the apostle Paul anticipates all of them he's wrestled through this you could tell he's had these doubts he's asked these same questions because when you hear that God chooses you the, one of the first questions you think is, that doesn't seem fair. How, how can God choose some people and not other people? Is God unjust? Well, look at the very next verse. Verse 14, here's what the Apostle Paul says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. When you hear that God chose Jacob before he was born and before he or Esau had done anything good or bad and he preferred him, the natural question, the natural response would be, well, God, are you unjust? 
That doesn't seem fair at all. How can you choose some and not others? So as the Apostle Paul begins to explain this, he brings us back again to another example, but this time with Moses. So chapter 15 says this, or verse 15 says this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, there's a lot behind this verse. This is going all the way back to Exodus chapter 33. What has taken place so far is God has rescued his people from the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. He has delivered them through the Red Sea. He has brought down bread from heaven, manna from heaven, and fed them in the wilderness. He has given God's people his law and guidance and clarity on how to live. And through all of this, God's people remain impatient. They complain. It's never enough. And so what they do is they revert back to worshiping one of the gods of Egypt, Baal, golden calf, they fashion. After everything God has done, they go back to worshiping the god of their oppressor. And as they are worshiping the god of their oppressor, Moses comes to find this reality out and he sees this happening And he is terrified about what God will do. He is afraid that God is going to leave them and forsake them. And so he is pleading with God and he says, God, do not leave us. And he wants to see who God is. And God responds to Moses. He says, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you about my name. Let me tell you who I am. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Isn't that interesting? God's response is that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. When Moses is seeking to encounter God and to experience God and to understand God, that is who God tells Moses he is. So why is the doctrine of election important? Because God says it's at the very core of who he is. This is at the very core of who he is. So back to that response that God gives to Moses that the Apostle Paul brings up here in verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's really important to to look at the words there because mercy cannot be an obligation, right? To show somebody mercy is to do it out of your own goodness, your own free will. It is free. You cannot be obligated to show mercy. It's given freely. So to say to God, God, it isn't fair that you choose some and not others, It isn't fair that you show mercy to some and not others. You should show it to everyone. That would be fair. It is to say, God, we are entitled to your mercy. You are obligated, God, and you should be obligated to show mercy to everybody, but then it no longer is mercy because mercy is not an obligation. 
You see, it's an important question to ask yourself. Does everyone deserve salvation? Is God obligated to save everyone? I think we would all answer, no, of course not. God is not obligated to save everyone. So what that means then is that our struggle with the doctrine of election is due to a misconception. And that's this, that we can think that salvation is connected to justice. That salvation is, has to do with justice. So therefore, we feel as if there needs to be fairness in salvation. But God is not obligated to save anyone. Nobody deserves his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. Nobody, he cannot be obligated to show mercy because then it fails to be mercy. You see, salvation isn't just. Salvation is not just. It's mercy. Salvation is a gift, not a right. It's a gift and not a right. We don't deserve it. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, our salvation and our election and God calling us to himself has nothing to do with us, with our will or how much we work or our exertion or how hard we try. It has everything to do with God who shows mercy because salvation is a gift and not a right. I want you to consider something. Imagine that you developed a heart of compassion for those here in Miami-Dade that are struggling with food insecurity. And you drive a lot for work and you see homeless people asking for food at the red light time and time and time again. And so you think to yourself, I want to help them in a way that is productive. And so you, you get $10 Publix gift cards and you keep them in your car. And whenever you encounter someone that is asking for food, you give them a $10 Publix gift card. And on average, you give about five cards out a week. That's $50. If you do that every single week, you're spending roughly $2,600 every year caring for people because you have a heart of compassion and you want to show mercy to those who are hungry. Now, there are tens of thousands of people in our own county that struggle with food insecurity, that are hungry. Would anyone ever come to you and say, hey, that's, that's great, that's, that's generous of you to give out those gift cards to those people that you encounter that are hungry. But it's not fair. You're actually unjust. You're unfair because there's so many other people that could use that gift card and you're not giving it to them. Nobody would say that because you're showing mercy. You have no obligation to give, and yet you desire to give because you're motivated by compassion. It has nothing to do with fairness. It's a gift. It's mercy. You see, we have no claim on God's mercy. We have no claim on God's mercy. It's a gift to us. It's not our right. So the Apostle Paul takes it a step further as he's developing that. He says this in verse 17 through 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So he brings up Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt who oppressed God's people, who Moses delivered them from after Pharaoh finally relented after plague upon plague upon plague that Moses told Pharaoh God would bring. So it goes back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, an evil tyrant, an oppressor of God's people and so many others. He speaks here about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He says, I have mercy on some. And some people, their hearts are hardened. So is what we're reading here looking at Pharaoh saying, poor Pharaoh. Pharaoh must have been a really good person. And then God comes along and he hardens Pharaoh's heart. No. Pharaoh was evil. Pharaoh was sinful. Pharaoh was an oppressor before the Israelites ever were conquered by the Egyptians, before they were ever enslaved. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In fact, here's what we read in the book of Exodus on multiple occasions. We read this, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Wait, wait, okay. So here we read in Romans chapter nine that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then we read in the book of Exodus, multiple occasions that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So what's the deal with this hardening? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. And we should know that because at the very beginning in the book of Romans, in chapter one, we read about who we are as people. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and our foolish hearts are darkened. We are people that harden our own heart because we want nothing to do with God and his truth and his ways and our hearts are darkened and hardened. So Pharaoh did harden his own heart. We see that in history and how he acted, how evil he was. So then, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes, he did as well. Again, in Romans chapter 1, we read about that. In Romans chapter 1, we read this. In verse 24, Therefore, speaking of those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and their foolish hearts have been darkened, they've hardened their own heart, therefore God gave them over to the desires of their heart. So, God gives them over to the desires of their heart. Pharaoh rejected God. He hardened his own heart, and God reinforced that position. He reinforced that. He gave him over. Pharaoh got what he wanted, which was a heart that was hardened and farther and farther away from God's word and his truth and his ways. His heart was hardened. Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian, says this about the hardening of the heart. He says, all those whom he, God, hardens want to be hardened. Everyone's heart that is hardened by God desires that. You see, all of us, everyone in the entire world, everyone that you know, experiences something we call God's common grace. That is, that God is active and involved in this world and he gives common grace to everybody. He allows sin, 
but he restrains it. Because if God was completely removed, then this would be a literal hell that we are living in. Because no God equals hell. But God gives common grace and he restrains, holds back the full effects of sin in our world and in our life. But at times, God loosens the restraints of sin on a particular person. As we read about with Pharaoh, he allows their heart to be further hardened, meaning there is less common grace, which produces a hardening, a deeper hardening in that person's heart where they start to act hellish. When someone, it it gets more and more hellish in their behavior, in their actions, maybe a hardening of the heart. And that person that's getting more and more hellish is actually getting the very thing that they wanted, which was less and less of God and more and more of what they think they want and what will produce what they think is success and joy, but it is quite the opposite. So if you're thinking that, if you're tracking here, there's another question that may pop into your head. Verse 19, it says this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Okay, I'm tracking with you, Paul. God chooses. He elects way before the foundation of the earth, before anyone has done anything good or bad. Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. God shows mercy on whom he desires to show mercy. It is a gift. It is not a right. And God also hardens. He reinforces the position that some people want and he loosens the restraints on sin so there's more hellish behavior in people, allowing them to receive what they want, which is less of God. So here's my question, Paul. How does God find fault with anybody? Because it is all dependent upon God's action or his inaction. Those that receive mercy and have a softening of their heart to receive the grace of God is completely dependent upon God's action. And those who become more hellish and get what they want, which is everything opposite of God, it depends on God's inaction. So how does God find fault with anyone? I don't see it. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Apostle Paul responds and he says, how arrogant of a question. How arrogant of a question to sit in the seat of judgment and to judge God for finding fault because you can't understand how God's election works to judge God's will and to judge God's ways. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, we need to remind ourselves that how God works and who God is is so far above and beyond our comprehension, our mind could never fathom it in this earthly body. We will not see in full until we are glorified. See, to question God's will, to question how how God works, is to claim for yourself divine wisdom. God, I don't like how you work. It doesn't feel comfortable to me. It doesn't settle well with my spirit. 
I don't understand how you find fault. It's to claim divine wisdom. The Apostle Paul says, who are we? God is the divine potter. He is the divine potter. He he furthers that imagery. He says this in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He says, listen, we are God's creation. We are the clay. Does God not have ownership over his creation to make and to form and to fashion as he sees fit? as he wills according to what he determines and knows is good and right? Does he not have that right? So I love the challenge here. The challenge here is to be very careful with how you think. Is to be very careful not to think that you are the potter. You are the clay. God is the potter. But it can be really easy easy to fall into the trap of believing that you are the potter. You reverse positions with God. I don't like this God. I can't understand it. It's very difficult. It's very deep for me. So you know what? We're going to reverse positions. Now I'm the potter and I'm going to form you God. I'm going to fashion you God in a way that looks and feels more comfortable to me. It's more palatable. So I'm going to mold God you as clay. Is this not what we see happening time and time again in our culture? What we see in the church, this deconstructing of the faith, saying, hey, I'm, I'm the potter now. God, you're the clay. Let me reform you in a way that feels comfortable. No, you're not the potter. God is. We're the clay. So some receive a softening of the heart by God's mercy to receive the grace of God. And some chart their own course and their heart is hardened as God loosens the restraints of sin. John Stott, a pastor and theologian, has a great quote. He says this, If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved... The credit is God's. What are we responsible for? We're responsible for the rejection of the gospel, charting our own course. What are we not responsible for? The acceptance of the gospel. That credit goes completely and solely to God. And here is where we see an apparent contradiction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It feels like an apparent contradiction, kind of like light where light can exist as as particles or as waves. In fact, in the scientific community, it seems like a contradiction in physics. But yet, it's true. And the hope of science is that one day, it will progress to understand why, why light functions in that way. And so as we try to understand God's sovereignty over everything, And yet the human responsibility that we bear for our own behavior and actions and how those work together, that great mystery, we wait. We wait because we cannot understand fully. But we do not wait passively. We do not wait passively. 
I want to close with an illustration. I want you to imagine I have five friends. You may think, you have five friends? Yes, I have five friends, okay. Five friends, and they want to rob a bank. And I start to hear about their schemes and their plans, and I know that this is not going to go well. It's going to lead to their destruction. So they're scheming and they're plotting, and I'm pleading with them, do not go rob the bank. Do not go rob the bank. Do not go rob the bank. And they look at me and they say, we're going to go rob the bank. We don't care what you say. And so they take off and they start running towards the bank because they've got it all charted out. They're going to get the vault. They're going to get the money. They're going to have a successful life. They know best. And as they, they take off towards the bank, I tackle one of my friends and I wrestle him to the ground. And I hold him there. The other four run into the bank. When they're in the bank, chaos breaks loose. They kill a guard by accident. They steal the money. They try to get away, but they're captured. And then they're convicted of murder and sentenced to death. But the one that I tackled goes free because he wasn't involved. The crimes that he was about to commit never took place because I pulled him back. You see, who is at fault for the robber's actions? They are. Now, why is that one man walking free? Is it because he had a change of conscience? Is it because he had a moment of goodness and chose the better choice? No. It's because I tackled him. I wrestled him to the ground and I rescued him. See, this is what is true of your faith. We are all running into our own destruction to rob a bank and face the consequences sentenced to death, and yet God rescues and tackles some of us. And so what is our response to God when we receive the mercy of God? It is praise to God, not in our own goodness, not in a change of conscience that we had. None of those things are true. We are free only because we were tackled by God. He rescued us. That's why we read here at the very end of chapter 9 that we are called beloved. We are loved by God. That is who we are. We are his chosen people, loved by God, tackled by God. And here's what I want you to understand. We know and we read that God saves, but listen, God also knocks. Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. God saves and God knocks. We don't know who God saves, but we know that God knocks on our hearts to rescue us. And if you hear that knock of God on your heart, don't reject it. Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Open the door. I will come in. See, this is God's mercy to you, and it is his grace to you. God has chosen to save you. Open it and receive him. And when, if that is true of you, if that happened years ago, if that happened today for the first time, 
that happened decades ago, the only response to your election is exaltation. It is to praise God for who he is. You can't understand him, but God saves and he knocks and he knocked on your heart. And so the response is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above all ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost because God's mercy is a gift. Praise him today, church. Will you pray with me? God, we humble ourselves before you. We do not understand you, but you are merciful. You are gracious. It is a gift to us. We want to thank you that you have given us that gift of grace. God, I pray right now for anyone that senses that you are knocking on their heart, that you are speaking into their minds, that they would receive you today. Holy Spirit, would you make known the truth of who you are? Would you pour out your grace upon them? Would they experience your mercy and praise you because you have rescued them from their destruction? That we are all running towards apart from you tackling us, pulling us out. We praise you, God, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.